Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello again, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. This is Michael Mancello, and I'm here today to speak with Dr. Donald Stern about his most recent book, Relational Freedom. Dr. Stern is a psychoanalyst and psychotherapist in private practice in New York City, where he also serves as training and supervising analyst at the William Allenson White Institute, as well as adjunct clinical professor and consultant at the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. He is the founder and editor of Psychoanalysis in a New Key, a book series put up by Rutledge, which is publishing much of the more exciting work being done in psychoanalysis today. Hello, Dr. Stern. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. Um, so one of the things I appreciated most about this book uh, was a series of chapters in which you outlined a sort of history of psychoanalytic conceptions of uh, authority and dogma and the analyst's place. Um, we move from Sullivan and Fromm to the world of contemporary Freudians and interpersonalists, and in the course of this review, we get a sense um, of a young man entering the psychoanalytic world and finding this world to be divided. Uh, in a later chapter of your relational freedom, you compare the psychoanalytic schools and the people who inhabit them to an intimate family who can grow annoyed with each other at times, as family members inevitably do. Um, so my first question for you is, how did you yourself first enter this world of psychoanalysis? What brought you into the family what what was the last question oh what uh the last sentence? sure uh what what brought you into the family oh uh, into the family okay well my background is is uh, like many people who become psychoanalysts um not a straight arrow uh i i was my undergraduate training was in experimental psychology and i started graduate school in comparative psychology at the University of Wisconsin, where I was the last graduate student of a man named Harry Harlow, who was um, uh, one of the most prominent experimental or comparative psychologists and experimentalists of his day. Uh, but it wasn't right for me. I had been doing uh, social, I'd been studying the social behavior of stump-tailed macaques, those are monkeys, for some years. Um, and uh, I thought I was going to go into comparative psychology or zoology or something, physical anthropology, one of those three. But I decided that while I was at Wisconsin, it just didn't feel right to me. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life transferring monkeys from cage to cage. And I went back to California, uh, where I spent the year working and feeling very anxious about my future, working in a variety of <laughs> jobs. There's a lot of funny stories about them, which I won't tell you now, but... That uh, was quite a year. And the following year, I started graduate school in clinical psychology. I went to a place that had both uh, psychoanalytic and behavioral orientations because I didn't think I knew enough to make a choice. Mm-hmm. But it turns out it wasn't necessary um, because when I got there, I uh, I had to make a decision during the first week about uh, what did it take a, a practicum that was run by a guy who called himself an ego psychologist but was really a social learning theorist and then the other guy was an old-fashioned drive theorist 
Hmm. Uh, and the, the psychoanalysis is what drew me. So I went that direction. I never looked back. Uh, during the years I was in, in Michigan, I spent, I saw, uh, I saw five people, four of them four days a week. So that by the time I was I'm about 24, 25 years old, I already done a lot of analysis. Uh, and then I decided to take another change of direction and I did a postdoc in neuropsychology, which had also been a long-term interest, uh, at the University of Iowa with a man who's sort of the grandfather of American neuropsychology, a man named Arthur Benton. Um, I really did enjoy that. I learned a lot, but I didn't feel I could talk to my colleagues about the things that mattered to me in the way I had when I'd been in graduate school and clinical. So I left there, despite the fact that I had gathered funding for myself for a number of years, I just left it behind, uh, and came to New York to become a psychoanalyst. I had enough money from selling my car to go to interviews in either San Francisco or Los Angeles, or San Francisco or New York. There were more places in New York, so I, I came here. Didn't know what I was doing. Uh, had never, the man who trained me in graduate school was not himself a trained psychoanalyst, so uh, I didn't know exactly what I was, where I was going or what I was choosing, but I interviewed at places I found in a book from the American Psychological Association, and I liked the White Institute. I had been uh, taught to, to have uh, great respect for both Freud and Sullivan, and that's what I found there. Mm. Uh, so I, I ended up going to White, and it turns out to have been a good decision. Uh, I always knew I wanted to write, so once I got there, I, before too long, started to do that. Um, does that answer your question? It does, although it's, it's a shame we won't hear about the, the crazy stories of your hand-to-mouth period. Yeah, well, I, I'll give you one short paragraph. Uh, during one particularly uh, distressing week, I was learning to sell rainbow vacuum cleaners door-to-door uh, in the ghetto, uh, and it would have been a tough job. I never quite got there because Friday, they, they were thrilled to have me. They thought they had some, they, had, they thought they had a good one. Uh, I was going to be a, a, a salesman for the rainbow vacuum cleaner company, but I got a job at the end of the week, uh, and, and uh, Monday we were going to go out. Monday, I started as an unemployment insurance adjuster, um, so so I didn't have to do it. But the man who who taught us in that rainbow vacuum cleaners wore a succession of taxi cab and banana yellow suits. My God, that's all he ever wore. <laughs> and he insisted that we call him Mister Big Banana. <laughs> You're kidding. So uh, if you if you tried to say something or if you had a question and you say, "Excuse me," he say, "What did I say?" Excuse me, Mr. Big Banana, you had to say. <laughs> I, so, I, I envy whoever analyzed Mr. Banana, Mr. Big Banana. Yeah, I don't think you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I noticed uh, just now, um, you know, you were talking about how you found your way. Uh, and you, you do something that, you know, you, you do in the book as well, which is mentioning all these, these figures um, – and people and schools of thought and uh, how they were attached to a certain time. Um, and you speak at length about how you've noticed uh, this world changing, um, you know, how the psychoanalytic world has been changing in response to changes in the larger culture and in turn how the psychoanalytic world has been perpetuating changes of its own. Um, could you explain where you think Anna Lazans find themselves now? Um, what do you think 
they want in the way of cooperation and inspiration from an analyst that they wouldn't have thought to want maybe 50, 60 years ago? Oh, you know, the, the analytic world has changed a great deal in the last 50 or 60 years. I, I don't know that I go back quite that far. Um, but uh, let's see, I came into it in, I started my training in 1976, my analytic training. That's after that postdoc. Mm-hmm. So that's 24, that's 40 years, 24 and 15. Um, I can tell you from, from that vantage point, you know, when I came to New York, um, the dominant uh, form of psychoanalysis was, was really still ego psychology. Mm-hmm. And I had a great interest in ego psychology, actually. Uh, I found it, it elegant and uh, beautiful, um, but I didn't agree with a lot of it. Mm. Uh, and over the years of my training and thereafter, I started to get much more interested in what the, the uh, interpersonal situation contributed with the context contributed by way of what parts of a person became actualized in any particular interaction. That's the interpersonal point of view. And at that time, there wasn't a relational point of view. It hadn't come about yet. It was a few years before that. So interpersonal psychoanalysis is really the only alternative in New York to, to uh, the, the Freudian psychoanalysis of that time. Mm-hmm. And it was a very difficult time for interpersonalists because there was a, a really sort of a hegemonic uh, um, relationship between those two schools. The, the Freudian school was very dominant and and very dismissive. Mm-hmm. But what's happened in the years since then has been that there's been a, something that's, I think, fair to call the interpersonalization of psychoanalysis in this country anyway, in North America. Uh, so that the, the uh, Freudian group discovered the significance of things like uh, the interpersonal situation, the interaction, enactment, mm-hmm. and now uses all those things routinely, not always with, with uh, attribution. In fact, quite often they feel that they've discovered those things independently. But there has been uh, a very heavy influence of interpersonal psychoanalysis over those, over those decades, and has changed the field a great deal. It was probably the heart, interpersonal psychoanalysis was the heart of relational psychoanalysis, which came about in the early 80s. Um, the people who started relational psychoanalysis, where many of us were, um, uh, uh, were trained as interpersonalists, Steve Mitchell and Jay Greenberg and uh, Philip Bromberg and me and Darlene Ehrenberg and Edgar Levinson. Um, then there were uh, there's a substantial group of, of relational analysts who were trained in other uh, ways as well. But Steve, who it was the figurehead of the group, um, Steve Mitchell, uh, was himself uh, an interpersonal psychoanalyst and, and felt that that was the heart of his views. So that I think relational psychoanalysis has had a very heavy influence on contemporary uh, Freudian psychoanalysis in this country. Uh, it's it's not so easy for them, but they they but they they've been living with us. They they know us. Those in New York here, we're all colleagues. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 uh, they've been influenced by direct influence, osmosis, um, it just uh, uh, interaction, and um, so that's one thing that's happened in these years has been the interpersonalization. I think of the field. Currently, um, we're going through a period in which there's a a very large 
and well, in between, there was also self psychology. Of course, Kohut became uh, very significant in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, um, these days, for for reasons I don't fully understand, self psychology has moved off and has, it sort of exists independently from the rest of psychoanalysis much more than it did when Kohut was alive. Um, they have their own organizations, and uh, uh, today within the mainstream of psychoanalysis, in particular, um, Bionian ideas have become uh, really influential. It's all through all up and down the West Coast, and it's, uh, uh, it's true in certain parts of the East Coast, though probably a little less so. Boston, in particular, does have a fairly heavy uh, Bionian presence. Um, so... These, these theoretical developments have happened during that time. You asked about authority relations, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, yes. That's changed. Yeah, that's changed a lot, too. Because, uh, you know, back in the day, in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, even all the way through the 70s, most analysts, not interpersonalists, but most analysts um, understood what they were doing as an interpretive discipline. They offered the correct interpretation by passing this packet of information between themselves and the patient that the patient was supposed to get better. That was, a, that was the understanding of therapeutic action. It was insight. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the way that personalists understood therapeutic action. It had much more to do with the states of relatedness. And um, that changed in the intervening years. But the, the, the authority of the analyst was all wrapped up in this because for traditional analysts, the analyst knew the, the content of the patient's mind. This, that was never quite as true as what I just said. That, that sentence makes it sound, but mm-hmm. the analyst, part of the analyst's expertise was to know what was going on in the patient and to tell the patient about it. Mm-hmm. From an interpersonal and, and a relational perspective, it's much more a matter of, a, of finding out together what some, something that really neither of you knows in a collaborative fashion. And so that means that the analyst doesn't know what's in the patient's mind and is um, the relationship, while, of course, there are, it's, it's asymmetrical in the, in the sense that patient and analyst have different roles, it's entirely symmetrical or, or egalitarian on, the, on a common human basis. We, we have reactions to one another of the same kind, patients and analysts. Right. It, it reminds me of um, two anecdotes from uh, your book, Partners in Thought. Um, one where you uh, reference the aphorism that uh, the greatest myth about psychoanalysis is that it's about a healthy person curing a sick person. And uh, that, that's Hacker. That's Hacker. That's Hacker. And you, you mentioned... Racker. Oh, Racker. Heinrich Racker, yeah. Right. And you, you mentioned in that same chapter, I think, this, uh, this joke um, about this um, drunk man uh, walking home who drops his key uh, in the dark... And when he gets to a spot uh, with a bit more light, he you know, finds this fellow who helps him look for his key, and obviously they can't find it. Um, and the, the companion asks the drunkard, you know, where did you drop your key? And the drunkard points far off in the distance back into the darkness, and his companion says, well, why aren't we looking over there? And then the drunkard says, because it's dark over there. And well, actually, actually, the, the way the story goes is the the, the guy the guy asks the, the drunkard, uh, "Where did you lose your keys?" And the, he's pointing off into the darkness, and he says to the drunkard, "Then why are you looking here?" Mm-hmm. And 
And the drunk says, well, because cause I can see. The idea being that if he went out in the dark where he lost his keys, he'd never find them because he can't see anything. Right, right. Which may bear resemblance to more technique-heavy <laughs> um, ideas of psychoanalysis rather than the idea of being attentive to the snags in the relationship between analyst and analyst and, and working in the dark, groping towards something. Yeah, that's right. And you're, you're, uh, um, you're mistaken that the that story comes from, uh, from, from relational freedom. It comes from partners in thought, but it's a good mistake, that's, which is what, the only reason I'm willing to label it as such, because it shows that you read that book, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that, story, that story comes from one of the chapters near the end of Partners in Thought. Mm-hmm. And so does that word snags, snags and chafing. Those, those words come from that book also. Right, right. Um, now, I, you mentioned this early on in your response, and I'd, I'd like to, to return to it. Um, what exactly did you find uh, elegant uh, about, about drive theory? No, not drive theory, ego psychology. Oh, ego psychology. Yeah. Um, well, ego psychology is, is very elegant. It's very, you know, it's, it's very exacting and precise, and, and it, it isn't necessarily very realistic, but it's very beautiful. You know, Hartman, Chris Lowenstein, and Rappaport um, really worked hard, and Merton Gill also in his own way, at um, putting things together in a way that was that was convincing from that perspective. It, it was a very incomplete perspective, I think, in the end. Left a lot of the, a lot, a lot of passion and feeling out. Um, but the truth is that you know, drive theory has its its appeal to me also. Not not as um, not as uh, a biological uh, way of thinking, but as as a way of, of bringing or keeping, you know, uh, the powerful passions in psychoanalysis. So um, there, there is a, whether I call that beauty or not, I don't know. But it's really impossible to read world literature in psychoanalysis without some sort of notion of drive. For example, you can't read Andre Green mm-hmm. um, uh, at all without accepting some notion of drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, um, it reminds me of uh, something that you talk about towards the end of, of relational freedom um, when you have the final chapter on, on curiosity and you talk about uh, the two ideal schools, um, one of which would uh, retain what was uh, valuable from, from past psychoanalytic theories. W- would you be willing to, to talk about that a bit, those two uh, schools? Um, yes, I can remember it. Uh, that article is on, um, it's, it's on curiosity, but I think it's called um, something like uh, Curiosity and the Ideal Psychoanalytic Institute. Dealing with divergent and, ideas in the Ideal Psychoanalytic Institute. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, the, the word curiosity is in there somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, it's the um, it's curiosity and then colon uh, dealing with uh, yeah. ideas. Right. Uh, well, that that paper was written for a special issue of contemporary psychoanalysis uh, on on um, it may have been on the Ideal Institute actually, or it may have just have been on psychoanalytic training. Somebody else who I I think you've interviewed, Sandy Butler. Mm-hmm. Did you interview or somebody interviewed her for for this this program? Sandy is a, one of the writers. Who, I have a book series of Routledge called uh, Psychoanalysis in the New Key, and Sandy has, has done four books now in it. 
Anyway, Sandy edited that issue of Contemporary Psychoanalysis, and I wrote this article for it. And in it, uh, I was... Uh, hello? Uh, it appears that we've lost Dr. Stern for a no, moment. curiosity. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Stern, sorry, the, the connection gave out for a moment. Oh, okay, where were we? Uh, you were just talking about um, how you, uh, it was just a few seconds ago, you were talking about uh, Sandy? I see. Okay, so I, I just mentioned that Sandy Butler was, who, who's written several books and, and published them in my series, and um, was the editor of the issue on the, on the Ideal Psychoanalytic Institute in which this paper appeared. <laughs> and um, in the paper, I argued that the most important thing about an analytic institute uh, is how it deals with otherness, um, with, with what's, what's not the point of view that it represents. Um, in my training, it was, always, it was always idealized, actually, not always... Uh, it was not always observed, but quite often uh, idealized the idea of a comparative psychoanalysis, that it's important to think about um, the different ways of thinking in psychoanalysis and not simply to to avail yourself of one of them. Even though where I went was an institute that is associated with the personal point of view. Mm-hmm. And I have always felt that that was the right attitude. So for me, curiosity is the, the biggest protection uh, the maintenance of curiosity is the biggest protection against the rejection of what's foreign simply because it's, it's alien to us or other or different. Uh, so I laid out a couple of, of uh, ways of thinking about it, um, ways of, of training. One of them, I, I don't remember now the, the names of the, the two. You don't have to remember them, do you? I do. It's the, uh, the accretion model and yeah. uh, the revolution model. Yeah, okay, very good. So in the accretion model, the idea is that you uh, are curious about each thing you come across and you try to find a way of of uh, accommodating uh, all the different ways of thinking, uh, getting rid of what you need to get rid of when you think it's no longer useful, but it's a, it's a much less radical way of proceeding than the revolution model, which is when you when curiosity leads you to a place where the old ways don't seem adequate, throwing them out and beginning again. Mm-hmm. And I think the conclusion I came to at the end of the paper was, you know, we really need both attitudes. We need to be willing to do to to do to think and proceed in both these ways. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the most, to me, captivating. Uh, parts of the book, one of the most captivating historical retellings was, funnily enough, uh, to be found in the footnotes. You take us back to 1946, uh, when Karen Horney's controversial class on cultural factors in psychoanalysis was restricted by the New York Psychoanalytic, where Horney worked at the time. Uh, It was restricted to fourth-year students over her objections because it was deemed too controversial. In response to this, and I'll quote you here, in response to this action, the story goes, a group of senior analysts young analysts and candidates left the institute and walked down the avenue singing, Go Down Moses, Let My People Go. They eventually banded yeah. together and formed at a new institute, the American Institute of Psychoanalysis, headed by Horney. Uh, unquote. Now, not long after that, many important interpersonal thinkers uh, and thinkers left the American Institute of Psychoanalysis, I believe, 
in your retelling, uh, because Fromm was denied teaching privileges um, for... Well, yeah, I, I, I didn't get that story quite right. And it turns out, I found out in retrospect, that Horni was denied te- teaching privileges at New York. It wasn't just that she was moved to the fourth year. Oh. Uh, but other than that, other than that, it's right. Oh, wow. And then, um, yeah, so it's somewhat more extreme. Right. And then, and then yes, something similar happened at the American Institute of Psychoanalysis, where the where the, the two original training analysts were Hornei and Fromm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fromm was, was, it was thought that, for, well, what happened is apparently the, the uh, candidates all ended up going to Hornei um, and, and we sort of routed or shunted there in some fashion. And there was more and more bad blood between her and Fromm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fromm uh, was eventually uh, told that he was uh, no longer... Uh, welcome to be a training analyst. And at that point, there was another schism, as there has been so often in psychoanalysis, and that's where the White Institute came from. Mm-hmm. Right. And if I remember correctly, the reason uh, that Horn and I provided, um, whether or not it's the whole story, uh, in your telling is because he had a PhD but not an MD. Is that that's correct? Apparently, that's part of it. it, it there were lots of, it was complicated things going on there, but that that was apparently cited as one of the reasons, yeah. Right. So then, then Horney uh, stayed with her original institute, but Clara Thompson and Eric Fromm uh, and a bunch of their students and and uh, William Silverberg left the uh, uh, left the American Institute and started teaching classes in New York. Uh, but they had to do it through, it turns out, the Washington School of Psychiatry for the first three years hmm. um, in Washington, D.C. And they were joined uh, because of the Washington, the, the connection with the, with the Washington group. Those, those people were joined by Harry Stack Sullivan at that point, who was not himself trained as an analyst, but who was willing to join this group, uh, and, and several others, uh, Frieda from Reichman, um, you, you know who from Reichman is, probably. Yes. Yeah, um, and um, she and Harold Searle, Harold Searles was not a member of this group, but he he during those years he studied with Sullivan in Washington and, and had them he had his he had his one foot in the interpersonal group. Mm. Then in, it was it wasn't until 1946 and that um, the White Institute actually was formally established um, in New York. And the, the, then there was a long history about the, uh, the relations with the American Psychoanalytic Association, which you may, not want to, may or may not want to go into now. But there has been a big change recently. The White Institute has just joined it. Has just joined the... The American Psychoanalytic Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so it's... That, that anecdote regarding from stuck me as interesting in the context of, of the work as a whole um, because there seems to be a current running through the piece uh, regarding the identity of um, the analyst as um, as doctor, as someone engaged in a scientific craft or as someone engaged in a humanistic art. Um, you focus on this rather explicitly in a later chapter and it's foreshadowed in earlier chapters too. For instance, when you talk about um, Sullivan and Fromm as being um, essentially equal, uh, equally influential fathers of the movement, but 
Sullivan not really identifying it as, as an analyst. Um, and so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the, the pressures within psychoanalysis for analysts to provide, you know, sort of empirical proofs of the efficiency of, of their treatment. Oh, I, all right. Well, yeah, that's, uh, uh, I didn't realize you were going to go there. Um, I was preparing for a different question about humanistic and so on and so forth, but we can, but we can work in both those things. Sure. Um, you know, I came, as I told you before, I, when I came off through a fairly hard-headed empirical background, mm-hmm. uh, I have no, I have no complaint about research in the right context, but the research that's, that's available in psychotherapy is, is mostly very problematic. Now, I have to be uh, fair about this because some of my colleagues, some people who I actually am fairly close to, do some of this work, empirical, quantitative uh, research in psychotherapy. And certainly there are many people who believe that unless we do it, we're sunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, now, I, I, don't, uh, I don't have any argument with doing it. I think that's fine. I just, what I take issue with is the same thing that... Um, that my friend Erwin Hoffman takes issue with, the piece that you're referring to was actually written as a companion piece to a piece of his. Um, uh, and the idea is that we argue with the privileging of empirical quantitative data in any kind of decision-making about what's an appropriate way to proceed as a psychoanalyst. If you're using empirical research simply as one source of inspiration, like case histories, uh, or, or reading philosophy or anything else, making you think differently about the experience you're having with the patient, giving you some, some, a tool, a way of, of maybe making something different with it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I just don't, I, I want to avoid there being any sort of imposition of, of techniques or, uh, or aims or goals or, or measures of, of, uh, success, um, that are, uh, uh, leveled against or on psychoanalysis and, and are, are used to measure it. It makes it into something instrumental, and I don't think it is. You mentioned the difference between uh, humanistic and scientific. Yes, I, I do come down on the humanistic side of it. On the other hand, in that same article, if you'll remember, uh, I also uh, say that I think the ideal attitude is the the uh, physicianly attitude, the attitude that a physician has toward his patient is much, much better as far as I'm concerned than the attitude that a lawyer or an accountant or some other kind of professional has because, because the physicianly attitude ever since the oath of Hippocrates has focused on a certain responsibility that the, that the, that the physician has to the patient. Now, as an analyst, you don't have a responsibility to make the patient better, but you do have a responsibility to provide a certain kind of care. And that's different than the responsibility that other service providers have, I think. Um, so in that sense, I, I don't mind at all being thought of as physicianly, uh, but I don't want to be, um, I, I don't want to be tied down to, uh, to empirical, uh, data and to, uh, evidence-based, you know, uh, um, solutions to treatment quandaries. Sure. And it also, you know, at this late stage of, of psychoanalysis, I, in today's psychoanalytic world, there are all sorts of questions as regard what getting better uh, can mean or look like. 
um, it seems as though there's a different form of getting better for every patient. Yeah, um, the problem is uh, the problem is medical insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem that we have is largely due to the medical system that we exist in. Um, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis are considered to be medical treatments in the context of medical insurance reimbursement policies, right? Mm-hmm. So um, they, because they're looking at them as medical procedures, as long as they're paying the bills, they probably do have the right to to insist that they get to choose the ways that they are going to define how people get better, and that is a problem for us. I think it's a main, it's a major problem for psychoanalysts um, to participate in insurance reimbursement systems, but there's no way that you can you can avoid it. Uh, I I think there are lots of things that have to do with getting better, as you put it, uh, that don't have to do with with medical criteria at all. The vitality, sense of agency, and so on. I mean, we could we could make up a list of these things uh, that are obviously not on on the. Uh, on the, the docket of a list when there's an insurance review being done on your telephone with somebody who has a UBH insurance. Mm-hmm. They, they don't ask about the patient's sense of vitality or, or sense of the growing sense of agency. Um, there's no existential on the other checklist. Hand, huh? Yeah, there's no existential checklist. That's right. Um, and, uh, but, on, uh, but on the other hand, it's also true that, that I'm not happy if I'm working with someone who has problems that um, are uh, that can be thought of as, you know, in the vaguest sense, medical. For example, just feeling bad. If if what I'm doing, even though what I'm doing is not point by point set out to to to, uh, to make the person better, because in psychoanalysis we don't believe that we have the choice of doing that. Mm-hmm. Still, the way we do proceed, if it doesn't result in symptom alleviation. Would make me unhappy if it if it didn't if it didn't work uh, to to alleviate symptoms. I wouldn't be happy with the treatment. I'd have to question what's the matter. Mm-hmm. You, this in this line of thought, I feel compelled to mention how delighted I was to find the interdisciplinary references throughout this book. You discuss artists, writers, and in fact, spend some time uh, talking about it, referencing the ideas of Frank Kermode and Harold Bloom, uh, which was really a, a wonder to see. Um, I also appreciated your joke that all, that, you know, not all psychoanalytic writers are necessarily pro stylists. Um, now, yeah, well, yes, very few. Um, now your book, among other things is about ambiguity and becoming comfortable standing in the spaces to borrow Bombard's phrase. Um, and literature as opposed to, you know, what insurance companies would, would rather see in the way of um, sort of univocal facts. Literature seems to present us with opportunities to exist in ambiguity and be just safe enough to encounter selves that may be uncomfortable. And seeing as how you included uh, a number of literary allusions in the text, I was wondering what to you uh, can literature teach psychoanalysis or what can it lend to the psychoanalyst who identifies himself with, you know, more of the, the humanist side? Well, okay. Let, let me first say something about your, your use of the, this word uncertainty or ambiguity. 
Um, I'm probably best known for the idea of unformulated experience, which was the title of my first book and my first paper in psychoanalysis in 1983, uh, which is a, a way of understanding the unconscious differently than, than it's understood in traditional terms. It's a way of understanding the unconscious as potential experience, experience that has not yet come into being. And rather than go into that in any detail, I just want to mention it uh, because uh, uh, it's, it's part of my, my orientation that I think it, it really leads, it's part of everything I do, the, that notion of what experience is like. In regard to your question about literature, um, you know, ever since I've been a kid, it seemed to me that that's the real writing. Uh, literature, uh, uh, fiction and poetry, that's the real writing. And the, the people who really move me the most are writers of, of fiction and poetry. I went into the field with the idea that I wanted to be able to say something that would have as, carry as much conviction and depth as Dostoevsky or, well, Freud had his, his Freud had his share of this. Dostoevsky, though, or Graham Greene, or, or any of the, the great character writers who you, you might uh, think of. Um, and I still think that those are the, the most instructive uh, portraits of people. Uh, I mean, word portraits. Uh, the ones that are contributed by our writers of, of fiction. Um, I, uh, I aspire to a level of, of, uh, feeling and depth that, uh, that I read in fiction. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you talk in both, I believe, Relational Freedom and Partners in Thought about a certain type of, of analyst who uh, will treat his analysand the same way that a literary critic would treat an author. Um, could you well, of course, I'm taking issue with that statement when I make when I bring it up. Exactly, exactly. And I was wondering if you could um, expand a bit about what you find unsatisfactory about this sort of textual treatment of. Oh well, relations. sure. I mean that that was a quotation uh, from Roy Schaefer, uh, who who I I was careful to say when I when I wrote this down. And it's certainly true that. In, in many, in most respects, uh, he's been a source of, of inspiration to be a major influence. Um, Schaefer had more to do probably than anyone else to, with, with bringing hermeneutics into psychoanalysis. But in this particular passage that I, I took issue with, what he's saying is that the analyst treats the patient the way a critic treats a text. And the, the, the context is that the, the subject matter is about the, when, uh, the patient who talks back, which means the patient who has something to say about the analyst's interpretation that's less than, you know, simply accepting. And, and surprisingly to me in a certain way, I guess Schaefer's attitude is, well, there's a certain autonomous critical command that the, that the, uh, the textual critic believes that, that he or she has um, and that the analyst should take the same attitude. So that if the patient has some sort of difference or objection uh, with the interpretation given by the analyst, the analyst should take that as one more thing to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't disagree with that, but it's quite partial 
because you also need to listen to the patient. And what it leaves out is the unconscious involvement of the analyst because every interpretation, every thought, everything you do with the patient has an unconscious uh, an unconscious part to it on the, on the part of the, the analyst. The analyst is always unconsciously involved with the patient just as the patient's unconsciously involved with the analyst. And for Schaefer, that isn't necessarily true. So he, he can take this, this attitude. I would listen to what the patient said about a thing like that with the attitude of trying to understand what I might learn about the nature of my involvement in the idea that I had just conveyed and what, what we might, uh, how it might be modified, made more effective, uh, might be revealed what, uh, something more about what it's about and what the nature of my involvement with the patient is and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that, that get to what you're asking? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, it leads us to a rather beautiful passage that you have near the end of your book, uh, which I'll quote for our listeners. Um, you say, the patient is open to his own mind, and so is the analyst who can't really attend to the patient per se, but only to his or her experience of the patient. And so when I am attending to my patient, I am attending to my own mind, trying to allow myself whatever is novel and what emerges for me. Now, some may read that and say, ah, he's attending to his own mind, this is therefore an intrapsychic analytic model, but I think you anticipate this argument, and immediately after this passage, you paint a picture of the mind as social. Um, could you talk a bit about how maybe focusing on the social interdependent nature of the mind between analysts and analyzant can lead to constructive work with, say, myopic enactments or other impediments to relational freedom? Well, I, I think of the mind as, as uh, distributed. I don't think of it as existing inside the head, inside the skull. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of it as existing inside the field. And the field is always larger than an individual, even when you're alone. Um, there, there are imaginary people with you. Uh, so anything that happens with the patient and me takes place in a, in a field between us and in, in which both of us are involved. So I, in order to, to make some sense out of something that I can't make sense of, I'm going to have to understand not only the patient's contribution, but my own. Um, and there always is one. So you're always asking yourself the question when you have a thought about the patient, let's say, that you think might be helpful. Well, but what might this mean in terms of the nature of my involvement with the patient that I'm not yet able to, to attend to? You ask about an accident. To me, enactment is a very particular thing. It's what I refer to as the interpersonalization of dissociation. What I mean by that is to, I, I, what I, what I, let me just take a, 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 do a little sidebar there. Most people who talk about enactment these days are simply talking about the unconscious part of the analyst's involvement with the patient. That's continuous. Because it's continuous, because you can find something of that in any, any, particular piece of, of the treatment you want to examine, the word enactment doesn't have a very specific meaning anymore. It's always there. So I wanted to specify the, the, word, the meaning of the word so that it could remain more useful, and that's why I refer to it as the interpersonalization of association. For me, an enactment is what happens as the last-ditch effort to prevent what Sullivan called and what Phil Bromberg and I have called not me um, the, to from entering and taking over awareness. Mm-hmm. In order, if that should happen, 
not me as the part of the person who it's not organized as self. It's not recognizable to you as yourself. It's what I cannot, must not be. So um, the idea is that if that part of you, and that part of you is a funny way of referring to it because it's not self, let's say that part of your subjectivity were to take over awareness, you would not be recognizable to yourself. This is very disturbing. So people will do a great deal to avoid it. And the last-ditch effort that you can do is to attribute it when circumstances call it into prominence in your conscious mind, attribute it instead to the other person. So it's, I'm not, let's say, make something up that's not good. I'm not greedy. You're greedy. And something something um, an interaction gets put together in which the analyst is characterized as precisely the thing that the patient can't tolerate being. Or it could work the other way around, too, but for the sake of simplicity, we can just say this starts with the patient here. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the analyst is um, generally, there are only so many things that are dissociated in life. There's a lot of overlap between what different people dissociate <clears throat> and so the analyst is going to have a problem with the way the patient treats him under these circumstances. The patient's going to treat him as if he's, a, as if he's bad in some way. Most enactments have an adversarial quality. They're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The, if the analyst can't figure out the nature of his or her involvement in their end of it, they're not going to be able to say something that's going to allow that dissociation to come home to roost in the patient's mind. Um, and I spent a lot of time writing about this over the last uh, 15 years or so. Excuse me. <coughs> I'm tickling my throat. Um, the last book, Partners in Thought, had one chapter in, it in particular called uh, The Eye Sees Itself, uh, which was originally an article um, in which this, this set of ideas is laid out with, with what I hope is clarity. Um, so... Yes, the analyst has to pay attention to his own, her own um, experience. No, I wouldn't say that's intrapsychic because uh, for an intrapsychic analyst, the, the, of, the, of the traditional kind, the most traditional kind, the analyst isn't very involved at all. Mm-hmm. We're talking about what's going on in the patient and the analyst is a subjective observer from the outside who's giving interpretations that are supposedly going to unlock the patient's mind for him. But from an interpersonal or relational point of view, because the analyst is involved, the only way that this thing can come can come together, this enactment, it now involves both of them, because it involves the analyst's reaction to what the patient's doing with him, which is quite often not conscious. Unless the analyst can come to that and make some kind of sense out of an emotional sense, it's not gonna. He's not going to be able to treat the patient any differently. Liable to get defensive, and the patient isn't going to be able to profit from the from the the, uh, the the enactments. Enactments are terribly important, though, because because they're not symbolized, they're unformulated experience, and because they're not part of the self, all of that's true. They're dissociated, they're unformulated experience, they're not part of the self. They can't be discussed. The, the material that's represented in enactments can't be discussed. It can't be even pointed at because it has no symbolic existence in the mind. It's not, it's not represented in any way. The only way it can come into the treatment is via enactment. And um, if you can't use that enactment profitably, 
you you lose the opportunity to expand the the, the uh, boundaries of the self, which is what happens when not me becomes me. And I took you on a very rapid tour of a, a fairly wide landscape there. Um, but what I would say to people who are listening is that um, if what I've just said whets your appetite, take a look at the the chapter called um, uh, the ICs itself in the book called Partners in Thought. But that whole, the whole line of thoughts also present in this book, Relational Freedom, especially in Chapter 5, which is, has the title Relational Freedom. Right, right. And you talk, um, to return to you know, the analyst uh, as involved with the analyst and not sort of standing on his, on his perch, um, as, you, as you reference the idea in Partners in Thought, the, the mythical perch where the analyst is objective and can look at the countertransference and everything that's going on without being unconsciously influenced by right. the countertransference. Um, you talk in relational freedom about an implicit theory that the analyst uses to 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 grope about um, in in the field, and I was wondering if you could speak a bit about uh, the shape of an implicit theory. Is said theory unformulated? Um, is it groping in the dark? Um, does it, as I believe it does, is it stemming from personal uh, feeling and passion as opposed to sort of um, hard-nosed following uh, manualized technique? Um, what would you like to say about uh, implicit theory? Well, you know, I, I think that... It, uh, I don't. I didn't say this in that chapter. I don't think, although I've said it elsewhere. But I, I do have the impression that all creative thought works this way, including the the creation of theory and psychoanalysis. There's a really nice uh, passage from a mathematician by the name of Marston Morse, M-O-R-S-E, uh, which I think I quoted in Unformulated Experience. What what he says is, the mathematician reaches into the into the sky metaphorically and pulls down a pattern for beauty's sake. And only after that does he make some kind of, you know, more rational sense out of it. I think all creative thinking is, 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 is to an important extent, not rational at all. It comes about spontaneously unbidden, to use a word that I often use. Um, and it, it is... It, it, we are sort of a conduit for it. It comes into being through us. Now, in this particular chapter, the idea is that the, uh, the theories, explicit theories in psychoanalysis, were once implicit theories. Um, they were created on the basis of the personal experience and the insightful sort of a cogitation about it of the people who wrote the theories. But before they wrote them, and all of us, uh, every day, are continuously forming them. We're forming ideas about, sometimes the theories are about, about uh, something broad like, you know, everybody. Sometimes they're much more particular, like with something that I think works with this particular person. And I begin to maybe throw it around a little bit without even being aware of it. How come? Why would that be? What, what, what's, what, is, what, what would he have to be feeling in order for me to be able to say this in such a way that it has this kind of impact on him? All those things are, are implicit theories. That that article and the, the chapter that was ba- that uh, was based on the article takes the position 
that series of technique and therapeutic action are all statements of values, uh, but that we don't generally uh, examine how value-laden our theories are. Every, every theory in psychoanalysis is a statement of a value. The theories of psychopathology, theories of, like, what is it that's good and bad about human life? What's, what's, what's a good thing to aim for? What, what do we understand to be problematic? Those are value positions. Um, the, uh, what does psychoanalysis aim to do? Well, in order to answer that, you have to be able to say something about what you think the good life is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a value position. Um, how do you influence, you know, someone to, to think more widely or deeply about something? Um, well, uh, those, those end up being value positions, too, because it depends upon uh, what you're aiming at, at least partly. So I, I was arguing for a, an acceptance of the degree of significance that values have in our implicit theories, the ones that we operate on in our offices all day, and then the significance of implicit theories in, the, in, in our conduct from one day to the next and in our eventual um, construction of explicit theory. Mm-hmm. And you, you have a, a chapter or a, a section... Uh, actually, I believe a, a, a whole chapter containing um, a, a clinical case study in which you talk about um, a patient of yours and you felt that you had an idea of a good life that didn't really coincide with his idea of the good life. The, the wider issue in the clinical case, if I remember correctly, was simply that you two um, had an emotional connection that was necessary but not sufficient, it proved. Um, but but there is a section there where you talk about um, differing ideas of, of the good life between. Animals. Yeah, I don't I don't know that we that we conflicted exactly. I know which chapter you're referring to. It's called uh, something about the difficult, uh, the hard to engage patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I know I know the passage you're talking about. I think what I said was <clears throat> that um, we usually think of this as some sort of a. Um, a failure to get across what we're trying to get across or to make something happen. He and I were very friendly with one another. We actually, we felt sympathetic with one another. He'd been in many different treatments that just hadn't worked out. And he was hopeful about this one as I was because we hit it off so well. Um, but eventually he just kept saying the same things over and over again. It was very hard for him to be very curious. And I think that was the, the big problem. And in the article I speculate about how come, you know, his curiosity was blunted in the way it was. Um, it was not blunted in many other respects. He was intellectually a highly gifted man, but in terms of his, his certain aspects of his emotional life, it was it had the it had the sharpness of a hammer, um, which is to say, it wasn't very wasn't very sharp. Uh, and at the end, when eventually things petered out, it's about it's about the failure of the treatment that particular. Uh, chapter, mm-hmm. and when eventually things petered out, and we both acknowledged sadly that it wasn't going to work, um, I I said, you know, I, I I shouldn't assume that my values about what's important in life are necessarily his or what's best for him, and that was part of what I was left with. Um, I don't think there was a conflict exactly, um, but you know. Uh, it, there, there are people for whom psychotherapy is probably not the best kind of intervention. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Stern. It's been a sincere pleasure to speak with you about your new book, 
Relational Freedom, um, and I encourage our listeners to give it a read as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you again for having me. My pleasure. Uh, for now, this is Michael Mangello of New Books and Psychoanalysis, signing off. <laughs>